Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Eleni Jarkas, and we are monitoring quite a few pieces of news that are set to hit our screens in the next hour or so. We're waiting to hear from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, as well as NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. We're also monitoring uh, US President Joe Biden, who is set to leave for Europe today. So lots on the go. But let's begin with the latest on Russia's war on Ukraine. Ukrainian forces fighting to take back territory. This video shows an intense battle in a village about 20 miles northeast of Kyiv. The Ukrainian military says its counterattacks north and west of the capital appear to have made some headway. However, in the southern port city of Mariupol, the Russian bombardment continues. New satellite images show more fire and destruction across the city. The Russian military is also firing on the city from ships, and that's according to a senior U.S. defense official. This video shows cruise missiles being launched off the coast of Crimea. Now, in an exclusive interview with CNN's Christiana Mampour, Kremlin Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov said Russia has yet to achieve its military goals in Ukraine. He also refused to rule out that Moscow would consider, consider using nuclear weapons. Well, we have a concept of uh, domestic security. And, uh, well, it's public. You can read all the reasons for nuclear uh, arms to be used. So if it is an ex- existential stre- threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. And U.S. President Joe Biden will soon be heading to Brussels for a series of meetings, and that's including tomorrow's NATO summit. It's his first overseas trip since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last month, and he's expected to announce new sanctions targeting hundreds of Russian lawmakers. CNN correspondent Phil Black joins me now from the city of Lviv. Uh, Phil, I want you to give me a sense of the latest in Lviv where you are right now. Uh, Well, Lviv here, Eleni, is a uh, a sanctuary, uh, really, for the people that are fleeing the conflict and the rest of the country. It's also considered something of a logistical hub for for getting aid to other parts of the country as well. It is unbelievably uh, peaceful, certainly compared to those other hotspots that you've already touched on and and, and been discussing, uh, and indeed where our coverage is rightly focused. Uh, The the general dynamic of the war today does uh, indicate a shift of sorts, as you've touched on there, in the sense that, yes, there is clear evidence that 
uh, the Ukrainian forces are not just defending now, but counterattacking in key uh, locations to the west uh, and north uh, of Kiev, but also, we're told, in the east, uh, near Izium and in the south, around Kherson and Mykolaiv as well. A lot of this uh, analysis comes from the US State Department officials. It also matches and tracks with what uh, our teams are seeing uh, on the ground to a significant extent. Uh, and you get a sense of just how fierce uh, the fighting is, certainly I think uh, from this new video uh, which was taken to the northeast uh, of Kiev in a battle, a, a fierce firefight uh, at a train station uh, there where you see this small band uh, of Ukrainian uh, defenders uh, taking fire, returning fire, and one of them standing out in the open repeatedly firing uh, and re reloading and firing again uh, a rocket-propelled grenade. So there is on one hand this cause for uh, optimism, I guess, uh, for the Ukrainian uh, resistance, a sort of optimism that was unthinkable just a few weeks ago. But of course, it has to be viewed in the wider context of what we are seeing uh, in terms of Russia's assault on this country, because there is plenty of evidence that reminds us of just how great the firepower they have is, how great this invading force is, whether it is uh, the shelling, uh, of the indiscriminate shelling uh, of civilian areas, including the port city of Mariupol, or uh, more targeted precision, even long distance, further distance fire, uh, further standoff fire uh, from ships and planes and, and so forth, striking very specific targets really at will across the country. Uh, so we're at a point in this war where we're about a month in. And in one sense, we are in a place where uh, no one really predicted when, when this started. That is a, a, a place where the Ukrainians are not just defending yeah. fiercely, they are counter-attacking, uh, and where the Russians, uh, has, having still struggled to build up any momentum, uh, are, uh, are still yet to take any key military goals. But uh, of course, there is every reason to believe that this war has a, a great uh, way to play okay, out just Phil, yet. Um, I want you to stay with me, Phil. Just stay with me for a second. Uh, I would like to bring you um, a few moments ago, President Joe Biden spoke to reporters uh, just as he was leaving for the NATO summit. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Partner, what would you like to say to European partners? I'm going to say that to their face. I'm going to say all I have to say, I'm going to say when I get there. But I'll be happy to talk to you guys when I get back. Already. How many are you coming? They're there. Do you have yeah. a message? I know. Do you have a message for Vladimir Putin? President, how concerned are you about the threat of chemical warfare right now? That Russia is using chemical weapons. How high is that threat? I think it's a real threat. All right, President Joe Biden there leaving for his European tour. Uh, Phil, we just heard him there saying chemical weapons and chemical warfare. It's a real threat right now. You're in Lviv, as you say, it's to a large extent, it has been a sanction. But at the same time, we also heard Peskov speaking to CNN saying that they can't rule out um, nuclear warfare and saying that they haven't achieved their military goals in Ukraine. Yeah, Russia has come under some criticism, President Putin specifically, for in the very early days of this war, publicly ordering the alert of Russia's deterrent forces, which includes, includes its nuclear arsenal. Uh, he was asked, uh, the president's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, was asked by CNN's Christian Amanpour whether Russia would rule out the use of nuclear weapons. And his response to that was, well, we have a doctrine for this. It's a document. It's, it's there to be read. Uh, and what it says is that when Russia feels... It, 
an existential threat. That, that is when the use of nuclear weapons is uh, justified. Now, what... Uh, what? Okay. We'll come back to you uh, at a later stage. We are taking now live uh, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg. He's uh, speaking at this moment. Let's listen in. Forward to welcoming President Zelensky, who will address us uh, during the meeting. President Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine is causing death and destruction every day. Allies stand united in support for the brave people of Ukraine and against the Kremlin's cruelty. Putin must end this war, allow aid and safe passage of civilians, and engage in real diplomacy. NATO allies have responded to this crisis with strong support for Ukraine and unprecedented costs for Russia. NATO has acted with speed and unity to protect and defend all allies. There are now hundreds of thousands of allied troops at heightened readiness across the alliance. 100,000 US troops in Europe and 40,000 forces under direct NATO command, mostly in the eastern part of the alliance. All backed by major air and naval power, including with five carrier strike groups in the high north and in the Mediterranean. At the summit tomorrow, we will make further decisions. I expect leaders will agree to strengthen NATO's posture in all domains. With major increases to our forces in the eastern part of the alliance. On land, in the air and at sea. The first step is the deployment of four new NATO battle groups in Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. Along with our existing forces in the Baltic countries and Poland, this means that we will have eight multinational NATO battle groups all along the eastern flank, from the Baltic to the Black Sea. We face a new reality for our security. So we must reset our deterrence and defense for the longer term. Tomorrow, NATO leaders will reaffirm our support to Ukraine. Ukraine has the right to self-defense under, uh, under the UN Charter. And we are helping Ukrainians to uphold this fundamental right. Since 2014, allies have trained Ukraine's armed forces and significantly strengthened their capabilities. They are putting that training into practice now on the front lines with great bravery. In the last months, allies have stepped up military support, providing anti-tank and air defense systems, drones, fuel, 
and ammunition, as well as financial aid and hosting millions of refugees. Tomorrow, I expect allies will agree to provide additional support, including cybersecurity assistance, as well as equipment to help Ukraine protect against chemical, biological, and radiological and nuclear threats. President Putin's invasion is brutal, and the human suffering is horrifying and painful to witness. We are determined to do all we can to support Ukraine. But we have a responsibility to ensure that the war does not escalate beyond Ukraine and become a conflict between NATO and Russia. This would cause even more death and even more destruction. I also expect we will agree to step up tailored support for other partners at risk from Russian pressure, including Georgia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Working together with the European Union, we must help them to uphold their sovereignty and the right to make independent decisions. We face a fundamentally changed security environment where authoritarian powers are increasingly prepared to use force to get their way. So I expect we will also address the role of China in this crisis. Beijing has joined Moscow in questioning the right of independent nations to choose, to choose their own path. China has provided Russia with political support, including by spreading blatant lies and disinformation. And allies are concerned that China could provide material support for the Russian invasion. I expect leaders will call on China to live up to its responsibilities as a member of the UN Security Council, refrain from supporting Russia's war effort, and join the rest of the world in calling for an immediate peaceful end to this war. We also call on Belarus to end its complicity in Putin's invasion. The decisions we take tomorrow will have far-reaching implications. Major reinforcements to our security will require major investments in defence. So I expect allies will agree to redouble their efforts to invest more. There is a new sense of urgency because we cannot take peace for granted. From the start of this crisis, Europe and North America have stood together, united in NATO, and we, may, and we remain united, opposing Russia's aggression, supporting Ukraine, and protecting all allies. And with that, I'm ready to take your questions. Okay, we'll start with uh, CNN, lady over there. Thank you, Natasha Bertram of CNN. Um, Mr. Secretary-General, Estonia has been calling for NATO to build up a permanent force in the region that is capable of stopping a Russian offensive, offensive but the NATO-Russia Founding Act technically does not allow the alliance to establish permanent military basing in so-called new member states. And so 
I'm wondering if you believe that it's time to repeal the NATO-Russia founding act, given its invasion of Ukraine. And I'm also wondering, Estonia's defense chief had also said that NATO should get involved directly if Russia uses weapons of mass destruction, like chemical weapons. And I'm wondering if these kinds of red lines and how NATO would react if they were crossed are going to be discussed. Um, first of all, we have to remember that we, over the last weeks, have uh, deployed a substantial number of combat-ready troops to the eastern part of Alliance. Unprecedented NATO presence in the Baltic region, including in Estonia. And I've been in Estonia myself, and I've seen the NATO troops there. We actually doubled the size of the NATO battle group, and we have doubled the number of battle groups in the eastern part of Alliance. So not only double the size, but also double the number of battle groups. Uh, close to 40,000 uh, uh, troops under direct NATO command, and then on top of that, uh, increased presence by the United States and others on, uh, 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 within the bilateral arrangements. So in totality, this is a significant reinforcement of our presence in the East, including in Estonia, uh, with air, sea and land forces. And uh, we, have, uh, we are ready uh, and we are there to protect and defend allies, ready to uh, respond massively to any potential threat attack against any NATO allied country. This has already happened. So this, is, this, is, this reinforcement has, has already taken place. And uh, we will then also tomorrow make decisions uh, and uh, declare the, that we have deployed four more battle groups to, uh, to Slovakia, Hungary. Bulgaria and, uh, and, and, and Romania. Then, there is a need to also address the more long-term consequences. So, in addition to what we have already done, uh, I expect also Allied leaders uh, tomorrow to agree a tasking to our military commanders uh, to look into the more longer-term consequences for our deterrence and defence. There is a need to reset our deterrence and defence, and I expect that to be a substantial increase of our presence for the long term. Uh, and we will do what is necessary to ensure that we protect and defend all allies, and ensure that uh, NATO uh, uh, provides credible deterrence and defence uh, to all countries, including uh, uh, Estonia. Russia has walked away from the NATO-Russia Funding Act. They have violated it again and again. They violated it clearly back in 2014 when they uh, illegally annexed Crimea and started to destabilize eastern Ukraine. And they have violated it when they um, uh, moved into Georgia in 2008. And of course, the invasion of Ukraine uh, now is a blatant violation of the NATO-Russia Funding Act. On, um, on chemical weapons, also, first of all, any use of chemical weapons would, would, would totally change the nature of the conflict. And it will be a blatant violation of uh, international law and will have far-reaching consequences. And I, think, and I think that's the most important message to convey. Uh, that uh, uh, any use of chemical weapons is, is absolutely unacceptable and will have far-reaching consequences. We'll go to NBC, lady in red in the middle. Yeah. Andrea, Andrea Major, NBC News. Uh, Secretary General, 
President Biden, in leaving Washington, just said that he believes that the use of chemical weapons by Russia in Ukraine is a real threat. Uh, you have just said that we cannot take peace for granted, and there is no sign, certainly, uh, that Vladimir Putin is taking diplomacy seriously. And here we have President Zelensky, who will plead again with NATO for admission to NATO. If chemical weapons are used in Ukraine, how would it be morally acceptable for NATO to ignore President Zelensky's plea for NATO admission? For NATO? For NATO admission. To ignore his plea to be admitted to NATO. Thank you, sir. What we see in, in Ukraine now is, is really painful. It, it's horrific, and, and, and we see the brutal consequences of a full-fledged invasion of a peaceful, independent, sovereign nation. And that's also the reason why NATO allies have stepped up support, including with advanced uh, air defense systems, anti-tank systems, uh, uh, different types of weapons, um, ammunition, and... and we are providing unprecedented support to Ukraine. And this is actually also comes on top of what we have done for many years. Because NATO allies have trained tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops since 2014. Uh, and they are now on the front line uh, fighting the invading forces. And uh, it is first and foremost the, the, the courage of the Ukrainian forces and the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian leadership that has enabled them to uh, resist and to fight back against uh, the uh, Russian invasion. Uh, but at the same time, the support they have received for many years uh, has proven extremely important and uh, critical. And I uh, expect that when Allied leaders meet tomorrow, they will uh, address how to further strengthen our support to, uh, to, uh, uh, to Ukraine. Um, NATO membership is not on, on the agenda. Uh, but support to Ukraine is absolutely on top of our agenda and will be one of the main, main issues to be addressed uh, tomorrow. Okay. Sky? All right, that's Jens Stoltenberg. He is the NATO Secretary General addressing the media there and just giving a little bit of insight into what is going to be discussed at the uh, extraordinary meeting by NATO members. Of course, President Joe Biden currently on his way to Europe right now. Some of what he said, he said the decisions that will be taken tomorrow are going to have far-reaching implications. He talked about China and Russia, uh, of course, the, the support there that China has been giving Russia, as well as Belarus, uh, saying that those two countries need to step uh, back. He also said that they're shoring up battle groups in the eastern flank, specifically talking about hundreds and thousands of uh, troops that now have been positioned in those areas. We've got Jim Bitterman for us. He is standing by to give us a little bit of insight. It was truly interesting to hear the uh, NATO Secretary General peppering us with a bit of information about what will come uh, during tomorrow. But I have to say, when you're talking about unprecedented decisions that are going to be taken, but are still walking eggshells around whether they're going to allow Ukraine to join NATO, the big question on what they will do if there are weapons of mass destruction involved or chemical weapons being used, he's basically saying that deterrence and defense needs to be reset. What did you make of some of that messaging? 
Well, I think he's trying to keep it ambiguous until he gets leaders together tomorrow, because I think there's going to be some differences between the NATO members. We've already seen that very publicly. Uh, Poland would like to take a more aggressive stance, uh, Hungary a less. And, and so you're going to see some discussion around the table at the NATO summit tomorrow exactly which direction NATO should go. And there's all sorts of things that uh, they might be considering, uh, including what you're su suggesting, making the Ukraine part of, uh, part of NATO, but also bringing in more weapons and that sort of thing. Uh, so there's a, there's a number of uh, issues that are going to be in front of them. That's one of the reasons why it's such a significant summit and why it is, in fact, a summit, because uh, you have to get the leaders of all the various countries in NATO together to have them decide on any of this. Lady? Yeah, Jim, I, I want to talk about something that's hit our news wires. Anatoly Chibayas, a Russian government insider for decades, you know, showing loyalty to Vladimir Putin to a large extent for a long time. We're hearing that he's leaving Russia. He has no plans to return. Uh, what is going on there? This is perhaps a sign that Putin is losing some of his insiders and people close to him. Well, it could be. It's certainly with Chubias, he's one of the insiders of the insiders. He's kind of the oligarch of the oligarchs. He was the uh, person who was in charge first under Yeltsin and then later under Putin of privatizing all the state-run industries uh, after the Soviet Union fell apart. And as such, he created many of these oligarchs by doling out the industries to some of Vladimir Putin's friends when Vladimir Putin became the leader. So he, was re he is one of the real insiders. The one thing we know is that TASS has confirmed he stepped down from his position, uh, which is a, uh, sort of an international position where he has relations with environmental groups around the world. He stepped down from that position. Uh, but Reuters is reporting additionally that he has left the country. If that's the case, it is a, a significant sign of one of the insiders uh, abandoning ship. Lainey? All right, Jim Bitterman, thank you very much uh, for that analysis. Great to have you on. Now, as the conflict drags on, there are warnings about the massive long-term damage to Ukraine and its economy. The UN recently said the destruction of Ukraine's infrastructure has cost more than $100 billion and counting, saying that 90% of the country could simply freefall into poverty. Yuri Vitrenko is the CEO of Naftogas, Ukraine's largest national oil and gas company, and served as the Ukrainian energy minister. He joins us now live from Ukraine. So really good to have you on the show. Um, before we get into the details of the infrastructure issue that we're facing right now in Ukraine, how are you doing? How's your family doing? And importantly, your team that is still very much uh, working to ensure that gas supplies don't stop to the most uh, needy people across the country. Uh, of course, it's not easy for Ukrainians to live through these horrors of the war. Um, our employees, uh, uh, they have to work because we have to keep Ukrainians uh, warm. Uh, I'm now in Kiev, that's our capital. Uh, air raids are constant, uh, but we have to live uh, under these uh, conditions. And not just to live, but also to so work to again to ensure that people are uh, warm. So we, we know we've heard so many of these stories where people are left in the cold that they haven't been able to uh, get any heating. Could you talk to me about the gas pipelines and the critical infrastructure that supports civilians and whether you think that Russia has been 
deliberately targeting those gas pipelines? Because there are other gas pipelines that feed into Europe. Could you give me a sense of what's going on there? Yes, Ukraine is rather a developed country in terms of centralization of its infrastructure. Uh, about 90% of Ukrainian homes use gas as a major source of um, energy. Um, and uh, because uh, Putin's blitzkrieg failed, he started targeting deliberately civilian infrastructure to create humanitarian catastrophes and to put additional pressure on Ukraine to give up. Uh, such cities as Mariupol, Severodonetsk, uh, uh, Kharkiv, rather big cities. Uh, again, people are there without electricity uh, heating for more than a week. And even today, for example, we had to shut down uh, the last heating plant in Severodonetsk because of the heavy bombing and, and shelling. So people will be left without uh, heating. And that's a deliberate uh, attack by Russians. Well, what, is the, what percentage of the critical civilian infrastructure that supplies gas has been destroyed, would you say? Uh, currently, I would say it's about uh, 10 percent. Um, so major parts uh, of Ukraine uh, we st were still able to provide uh, gas over there, electricity and other utilities. Uh, we, we are trying to do our best and still to deliver, again, uh, critical supplies in uh, areas where it's possible. I want to talk about the gas pipelines that run through Ukraine that go into Europe and whether there's been any interruption in the supply chain from Russia into European countries. And what's your assessment? Do you think we'll see an interruption? Uh, currently, there is no interruption and there is no damage. So it's also obvious that uh, Russians are trying not to damage this high pressure pipeline that transit gas from Russia to Europe. So they're targeting low pressure pipelines, so-called distribution pipelines, but not the high pressure pipeline. Um, Let's see how it develops, because they are harassing our employees uh, uh, in the occupied territories. They try to interfere in our systems. We tell them that uh, it's not acceptable and it endangers uh, transit. So, but it's still kind of an ongoing uh, problem uh, in those stations that are in the occupied territories. So, you, you know, you're the former energy minister. You are now, you know, heading up this important utility in Ukraine. How does it make you feel that the invader is sending gas to your allies through your country right now? Do you feel that there should be sanctions against this? Yes, uh, we are very consistent in terms of uh, demanding a full embargo on Russia gas and oil because uh, Putin uses this money on his war machine to kill um, Ukrainians uh, and to wage this aggressive wars uh, uh, all over the world. So that's why it should be stopped. Um, if some European company, uh, countries at the moment uh, still uh, depend on Russian gas and oil to an extent that they cannot uh, stop uh, purchasing it, then at least uh, so-called uh, escrow accounts should be used that Putin cannot get money uh, for the exports of oil and gas. And uh, this money is frozen until he militarily withdraws from uh, Ukraine. That's something that uh, uh, we could see in, in, um, in case of Iranian sanctions. So that's something that should be done immediately yeah. so that Putin stops getting this money. Yuri Vitrenko, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Really good to have you on the show and we wish you all the best. Take care. Thank you. Bye. We're going to a short break and when we return, we'll have Chief International Anchor Christiane Amanpour joining us to talk about her interview 
uh, with Peskov and how nuclear seems to still be on the table for the Russians. We'll be right back. Nearly four weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Kremlin Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov told Christiane Amanpour, President Putin has not achieved his main objectives yet. Do you foresee, because this was going to be, according to your own side, in, in the press, in the state-sponsored uh, media in Russia, a pretty quick operation. It was even suggested that, you know, within a couple of days that, quote-unquote, Ukraine would return to, quote-unquote, Mother Russia. What has gone wrong and what do you see for the, for the next phase of this? Well, of course, no one would think from the very beginning about a couple of days. It's a serious operation with serious purposes. And I think if we, if we try to remember those purposes, those main, main goals of the operation, it's to, to get rid of uh, the military potential of, of Ukraine and uh, actually, this is why our military are targeting only military uh, goals and military objects on the territory of Ukraine, not civil ones. Russian military are not hitting civil aims, civil targets. Uh, number two is to ensure that Ukraine changes from entire Russian center to a neutral country. And in this sense, let's remember that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, actually the neutral status was fixed in a declaration of independence of the country. Number three, to get rid of the nationalist uh, battalions and nationalist regiments who are now actually, who are now opposing Russian troops, who are now trying to cover themselves under the shield of civilians thus uh, paving a, a way for uh, civil casualties. Um, uh, Dimitri, and also, yeah. and also, I beg your pardon, if you, if you let me, uh, and also to ensure, to ensure that Ukraine uh, acknowledges, acknowledges the fact that Crimea is also a, an untakeable part of Russia and that People's Republics of Lugansk and Donetsk are already independent states that Ukraine uh, actually has lost them uh, after the coup that happened in 2014. Okay, so basically you are putting and laying out the original demands from President Putin, which I understand seem not to have changed. CNN Chief International Anchor Christiane Amanpour joins me now live from Brussels. Really good to see you, Christiane. Thanks so much for joining us. Honestly, it was completely surreal to watch parts of that interview. Were you surprised that Peskov told you uh, Russia's goals in Ukraine have not been achieved yet? And what does that tell you? Well, I was somewhat surprised by that, but I was also alarmed because what it tells you is that they plan to stay in this for the long haul. At least that's what he was indicating. And not just stay in it for the long haul, but to achieve the maximalist goals that they set out from the beginning. So that is something that I think the world has to reckon with as they try to figure out where this end game, if there is an end game, if there's any possibility of a negotiated end to this, uh, where it might lie. At the moment, there seems to be absolutely no daylight on that. 
that. And I spoke to the um, president of the EU Council, along with the United States and other officials. They're actually not sure that the Russians, President Putin, is at all serious about negotiating right now. And perhaps is just stringing the process along, stringing Ukrainians along, and just potentially trying to ramp up the military, uh, the military offensive. Now, the other thing, of course, which is very alarming, is this uh, idea, which, as we know, is part of their military doctrine, and that is to throw out disinformation and misinformation and see what sticks in order to confuse, they hope, the, the West and their, you know, their adversaries and their allies around the world. That is this notion that they are not targeting civilian infrastructure or that brigades are hiding in hospitals and the like. Um, this there is no evidence of, but it is a tried and tested tactic, certainly by the Russians. It goes all the way back to what we call the Gerasimov Doctrine. They have perfected war by alternative means, and that is a war of information, disinformation, and outright misinformation. So that's what's happening there. But the West is very concerned that this stalling of the ground offensive will lead to even more of these brutal attacks on the civilians, whether it's from the air, as we see more and more of, whether it's long-range artillery, whether it's from boats in the, or ships uh, off, uh, off the coast of Mariupol, as we've been seeing. And these are very, very, very difficult days for those towns because the objective is to terrorize the population, to get them to leave, to surrender, but most importantly, to get the government and its troops to surrender, the Ukrainians. And they refuse point blank to do that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was uh, incredible to see the unapologetic stance about the falsehoods that he was spreading. Um, and I know you spoke to the EU Council president, but we just heard from the NATO chief, and he says the decisions that will be taken tomorrow will have far-reaching implications. I want you to tell me about the significance of the show of force at the moment with uh, Joe Biden being in town for this NATO summit. Well, look, it's really significant. I mean, he's here for a NATO summit and an EU summit. It's the first time that an American president has been invited to an actual EU summit, not a bilateral EU-US, but the 27 leaders of the EU invite as their special guest, the president of the United States, their exclusive special guest is how they put it. And this is really important to keep not just the reality of a united front, but the demonstration of a united front for the world and especially for Ukraine and for President Putin. Um, I spoke to the EU Council president, and he basically said that in many, many, many instances, on many levels, President Putin has miscalculated, not just in terms of how quick he thought his ground offensive would go, but in the political sphere as well. Listen to what he said. Uh, probably they thought that uh, the EU would be immediately divided and that we would not be able to take united decisions. This was also a mistake. Probably they would have thought uh, that the United States and uh, the EU, we would not be able to be exactly on the same page and to, and to strengthen this, uh, this alliance. It means that what's important, we must make sure that Putin will be defeated. It must be the common goal. Uh, this is a question of security for the future of Europe and for the future of the world. 
So, Eleni, that is the most important statement that he just made. No wishy-washy semi-deals that allow、um, you know, this kind of aggression to stand, but to, as he said, make sure Putin and the Putin idea is defeated, Putinism, when it comes to Europe and the rest of the world. So that's really important, and clearly it's not just a political agenda, but it is the NATO agenda as well. So when we, when we hear tomorrow from the U.S. president, from the other NATO leaders, from the Secretary, Secretary General, I have an interview with him tomorrow, reposturing NATO forces to meet the current challenge and those that might emerge in the future. And one of those challenges on the political and economic front, you just heard from the Ukrainian former energy minister, is about energy and the dependence of Europe on、uh, Russian oil. Michel admits that yes, this is a, 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 a sad reality that unlike the United States, they are really dependent on Russia、uh, for their oil and gas. So they are trying. Um, to get a plan B to be able to get oil and gas and that kind of energy from places other than Russia. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned the issue on oil and gas.、Uh, and again, you know, seeing those pipelines. Going from Russia through Ukraine and into Europe, it is a hot topic.、Uh, but what is the appetite? And I know you, you touched on this now. What is the real appetite in your prognosis, in your mind, about whether Europe is ready to take these very tough decisions? It's a double edged sword, but it's one that needs to happen relatively quickly. Well, as they say, sort of almost like threading the needle, they say we have to do this, but we also have to be careful about our own economies and our own citizens. That's what they're saying in the United States as well. These are really tough decisions that have to be taken. I mean, on the one hand, if you want to look at a silver lining, it is an absolute kick in the correct place for the spurring of. You know, trying to get renewables up. All the promises that all our leaders have been making through COP 1 through 26 to get renewables as a real alternative. This could be the turning point for that, but it doesn't happen overnight. And so they've got to figure out how to replenish and how to be able to get other、um, kinds of energy, sadly still fossil fuel, that can make them you know, less dependent on, on Russia. And that's basically where we are at the moment. You heard the energy minister, I thought it was really interesting. Saying that, okay, if you have to take it from Russia, put the money in an escrow account. Don't just give it to Putin to fund his war machine. There's another issue that's coming up, and something to ask,、uh, to ask Europeans certainly.、Um, apparently, quite a lot of the money does go to Russia, but not in Russia itself, outside Russia, to various accounts and headquarters that their gas and oil industries may have, for instance, in Switzerland. Anyway, that needs a little bit more investigation and to, to, to be asked、uh, more deeply. But there are ways of, of trying to not allow Putin to benefit from this while also not you know, starving Europe of their necessary gas and energy needs. Absolutely.、Uh, Christiane, you couldn't have said it better. It is a double edged sword and it's a tough decision.、Uh, but, you know, whenever there are sanctions in place, countries always try and find a way around them. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was really good to speak with you. All right, and more to come from CNN after the break. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Now, combat veterans are entering hostile zones again, this time to help rescue Ukrainians. Veteran rescue group Project Dynamo was originally founded in an effort to save American civilians and U.S. allies in Afghanistan. Since the start of the Russian invasion, the organization has received over 14,000 requests for help from desperate Ukrainians. Brian Stern, the co-founder of Project Dynamo, joins me now. He's an Army and Navy combat veteran. And he was uh, a 9-11 first responder. Brian, really an honor to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. And you've had 19 successful rescue missions thus far. I want you to give me a sense of just how much work you've been able to do since the start of the war. Uh, actually, the data is a little uh, old. We're at, I think, 26 operations, including the one that I'm on right now. Wow. So uh, we... We've uh, we've we've done all kinds of stuff. We've done buses. We've done babies. We rescued an 82nd Airborne paratrooper that was trapped, surrounded by Russians two days ago. Uh, surrogate babies, uh, British babies, American babies, all kinds of stuff, including a couple of dogs, cats, and even a guinea pig. Oddly enough. <laughs> Oh, that's what look that that's actual that's wonderful news i you know since the start of this war we've seen humanitarian corridors supposedly opening up and some were actually death traps uh how difficult has it been for you and your team to help people get out from the most difficult of situations in the hardest hit cities we um think this ukraine is an active war zone so uh we we had artillery in kiev about two hours ago so uh, make no mistake, it is a war zone. People die here every single day. These operations are incredibly complex, some more than others. But, um, but uh, it, is, it, is, uh, it is a challenge every single day. Every time we do something, it's hard, that's for sure. Look, you've also done a lot of work in other war zones, um, in particular in Afghanistan. Um, a conflict is a conflict and a loss of life is absolutely devastating. But I, is there a way you can give me a sense at the level of conflict that you're seeing and devastation and the specific civilian targets that are pretty unprecedented that we've been seeing happening in Ukraine? Yeah, the, the civilian targeting uh, aspect of this war is by far catastrophic. Uh, I, people, I get asked this question all the time. I equate it to to almost a natural disaster. There are parts of Ukraine that look like Haiti after the earthquake, where it's just piles of buildings and rubble. Uh, and that's as a result of mostly Russian artillery and missiles. A little bit of tank, but mostly artillery and missiles. So um, this is a humanitarian crisis of, of, of humongous uh, proportions. And, um, and when war happens, it's always terrible. It always is, no matter what no matter what the reason or, or the cause behind it. I've spent most of my life in conflict zones, but the people that pay the most are the civilians in between the warring parties, that's for sure. Yeah. So, so when you see a maternity hospital being targeted, which, of course, let's you know, make it clear here, this is the most vulnerable part of the, the community, pregnant women and newborn babies. What does this tell you about the willingness for Russian military, military to target indiscriminately and and how does that affect your missions when you're looking at how this is going to turn out uh that targeting kind of motivates us or compels us to act 
Uh, I'm not here. Dynamo's not here to rescue Ukrainian soldiers. Not that we have a problem with it or anything. We are here for for civilians who need our help and assistance. So when I see vulnerable populations, the most vulnerable populations like babies being targeted, that that makes my team not want to sleep for three or four days and pull out as many as we possibly can. And uh, and that's what we do. We brought a baby across yesterday. An American baby from Indiana came across yesterday. Well, it's great news that you're able to assist the most vulnerable. Brian, what do you need? I know you're an NGO. You rely on funding. How has the funding been going? And have you been able to access resources to make your work easier? Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, we, we need money and we need, we need money bad. Uh, ProjectDynamo.org. Click the donate button. Uh, you, you give money, we save lives, whether it be babies or veterans or Americans or Ukrainians or Afghans or Canadians or whoever, all of which we've rescued in the last 10 days. Um, so we need, we, need genera- we need generous donors to help us. The funding is difficult. We need to keep the story alive. This is very, very, very far from over. And we're doing ops every single day, yeah. uh, including as I talk to you right now. Well, good luck on your projects, good luck on your rescue missions, and we really wish you all the best, and we'll hopefully catch up very soon with more good news stories. Thank you, Brian. All the best to you and your team. Much appreciated. Right, more to come from CNN after the short break. Stay with us. Justin, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow says detained American pro basketball player Brittany Griner is in good condition after being granted consular access to her. A State Department spokesman told CNN's Poppy Harlow they are continuing to make sure she is treated fairly. Now, earlier this week, U.S. Ambassador John Sullivan met with the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and demanded Russia, quote, follow international law and basic human decency to allow consular access to all U.S. citizens detained in Russia, including those in pre-trial detention. Finally, a show of defiance from young Ukrainians in Turkey. Sailors from a youth sailing school in Odessa tried to stop a super yacht from docking in the port of Bodrum because it's believed to belong to Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich. The team waved flags and chanted, no war in Ukraine. Their coach said it was the team's decision to try and block the yacht and that they want to show everyone who Ukraine is. The yacht eventually docked on Monday evening. All right, so that's it for the show. I'm Eleni Jokos in Dubai. Thanks so much for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.